you, Rachel Nampton, who I know as Nami, and it's weird to call you Rachel, even though no one else calls you that. Um, you were just saying something very interesting about linguistics and how you read a book, Word Slut. Can you say that again? Yes. The book is called Word Slut by Amanda Montel, and it goes into the patriarchal nature of so much of our language. And interestingly enough, you started the sentence with um, which is a filler word that you said you like to cut out of podcasts, but I learned that it actually serves a linguistic purpose. And I don't want to grill you on the book, but what is the linguistic purpose, for example, that I opened with um, and I cringe that you caught me? So I can't now recall all of the details. Yeah, I don't mean to grill you on the book. (laughs) Did I do my reading? Did I take notes? (laughs) Uh, One of the things was natural pausing conversations can invite openings. You're signaling different things about your personality and who you are and your expertise on the subject based on the filler words that you use. So Mm. if you use something like, you know, it's a way to invite people into the conversation or pause for a reflection moment. That's my go-to. So I feel better about that because I feel super unintelligent when I say that and I catch myself saying it all the time. And so it's good that that's affirming. That's a positive, but I do feel sometimes it comes across as needing affirmation. Mm -hmm. You know, I need someone to make a verbal sign that they've heard me and affirm what I'm saying. And so I wish I didn't need that sometimes. But that's okay because one of the other things that she talks about in the book is how that is actually a way that females tend to interact and verbalize and converse with each other because that is a natural way that we interact and or a socialized way that we interact. But we're actually wanting to validate each other is a characteristic of conversation. So, and that's a good thing. Okay. Or can't be. Well, thank I you. Know. I will. Highly recommend the read. It's very fun. Yeah. And informative. Yeah. And timely because you are a seventh grade language arts teacher. And so do you touch on linguistics or is that just a pleasure read? So that was a pleasure read. Although I try to bring in a lot of things that I'm learning about in my life and hopefully let it kind of filter into my, at least my philosophy of what I bring to the classroom. But as a as a first year teacher, I was really hopeful before I got into teaching that I would bring in so much of this kind of interesting, juicy, linguistic material or really interesting cultural commentary. And I find that so much of my time and energy is focused on the very basics of how to read, how to write simple sentences that I don't get to do as much of that or haven't figured out a way to do that yet. Do you think that's yeah. a function of public school or the fact that teachers have too many students in their classes and are overworked or can it not be pointed to one source? Definitely not just one source. It is all of yeah. the above plus many years of a pandemic that left children completely without a formal education for yeah. a few years now getting back into it. It's- very complex and challenging. Do you feel like because this was your first year teaching, you don't know what you don't know? Or can you sense that there's something amiss because we've come off the pandemic? A little bit of both. I think Mm -hmm. it is a benefit that I didn't start 
two years ago or three mm-hmm. years ago that I did get to start this year because I'm coming at it from a base of, okay, it's our first kind of real normal year yeah. back in a classroom where we've got, we've figured out how to integrate. We're not wearing masks anymore. A lot of our social distance policies are not in effect. So it feels pretty normal. And so for me, it's just like, okay, this is how education is. This is how school is. But you talk to really experienced teachers or veteran teachers, and they are just like, it's so hard. The kids don't know anything. I don't know how to be a teacher. Where I'm just like, well, this is just what it's like to be a teacher. I guess I'll, mm-hmm. I guess it'll just be hard and I'll figure it out. But I did find that my teaching program, because it was geared towards higher or secondary education, didn't give me the basics on how to teach kids how to read. And that is something that so many of my students, they do not know how to read still. And that's something that I'm really trying to fill that gap. Hard work. Oh, when you say your master's was more focused on higher or secondary, what does that mean? What are the different types of teaching masters? So I think it depends state by state, but here in Oregon, where I am located, Portland, Oregon, the way it's set up is that you can get a primary education degree master's degree and license meaning, and that meaning like through K through fifth, elementary so elementary okay. yeah primary is elementary and then secondary goes middle school and high school got it so that makes sense that is unfortunate that there are seventh graders still struggling to read yeah I would say that I was actually looking at some data today because I'm in this workshop a curriculum planning workshop where we're figuring out how we're going to teach next year and mm-hmm. We're looking at some data around our students' lexile levels and what reading level they are at, which basically like how, what challenge, what challenge of text can you read and how well can you comprehend that text? And 50% of our students are below or well below basic reading level. Oh man. Many of my students reading at a fourth grade reading level in seventh grade. It's very challenging. That is so challenging. Do you feel it's hard to assess reading levels in a standardized way? Or do you think for those, it's pretty clear that the comprehension is not there? I think it's pretty clear for a lot that the comprehension is not there. We use this tool called the reading inventory, which is a very Mm -hmm. data-driven assessment. And there are pros and cons to that because the kids who are you know, primed and good, good at taking, good at taking tests. You can't see, but I'm using air quotes. <laughs> good at taking tests are better at those kinds of things. So the data can be skewed, but it's a pretty straightforward assessment that just tracks reading level, okay. which of course does not track intelligence in any way. Mm-hmm. Just kind of your basic, how well can you decode what words are saying and comprehend what they are meaning? Do you identify as a kid who tested well? For context, we met at UC Berkeley and a lot of my identity is tied up in being also air quotes smart and a lot of my self-worth was wrapped up in getting good grades and conventional metrics of success. So is any of that coming up as a middle school teacher for you? Do you see that play out for kids? If you were to give me a grade on how well I took tests as a kid, I would give myself a hundred percent. I I was a really good test taker. Like that, my brain works in a way that I read questions and I know 
how to do multiple choice and what those strategies are. I knew how to figure out what a teacher was asking me and give them that thing. And so definitely a lot of my, at least my formative years growing up was tied to how well I could do in school. But meeting at UC Berkeley, I think a lot of that did change when I joined the sociology program. And I, because I got my degree in sociology and so much of the classes are, they're like, we don't want grading to be a factor because that just buys into the societal norms. So we're going to let you explore your knowledge. And if you do that, then grades don't matter. And so it instilled mm. in me this philosophy once I got to college. Oh, okay. I guess it doesn't matter so much, which I don't think was the case for many people who are at the same school, just in different departments. Oh, I think I told you that I took an undeclared freshman class that where they previewed all the majors. And my takeaway that I w- was that I wanted to be a sociology major. And my mom said, try again. That's not a I don't know what her words would be, but valid enough, you know, marketable. She wanted business or something like that. But wow, that sounds like such a beautiful experience and was not my experience at all. And I think it would have been really helpful to decouple that in your in your higher learning education experience. How cool, because that's how higher education, I think, was meant to be back in the day before we started ranking schools and standardized testing and making everyone fit into little boxes. You know, it was supposed to be about critical thinking and not just test taking. So I love that for you. <laughs> we need, everyone needs that. Yeah. And school is not so tied to, oh, this is going to be an excellent career choice for you, which I will say sociology did very little for my career. I am so glad that that was the major I chose because I learned so much and I think it really established my worldview and my philosophy as a human, which I can apply to literally everything that I do, but it doesn't, didn't necessarily help me get any jobs. I didn't, I have never had a job in sociology. I think it's very rare. My husband's an accountant. And so I think that's the only clear line besides engineering. If you get any other major. There are useful things I learned in econ, but nothing I apply to my daily life. I do think it made me maybe look more marketable, but I don't think anything that I learned actually set me up for a tangible job success. So I think it goes back to what is the point of higher education? Is it really to set you up for job success or is it to make you more of a critical deep thinker? Because The way it's set up in my experience has never been about critical deep thought. It's just how to finagle, triangulate my way to the best outcome, you know, and not, I I wish I could redo it now and just really soak up everything like a sponge. I wish we did college later just because 18 is such a rough time to try to figure all of that out. Yeah. You know, my parents strongly encouraged me to take a gap year before. After no way. High school before college, they're like, you should just go do something else. Go have an experience. Go travel. Go get a job. Do not go straight to college. You don't, you're just a child. You don't really know what you want. It's just, you're, it'll pass you by and you won't have been an, an active participant in your learning. And I was like, what are you talking about? I have to go to school. That's what you do. You graduate from college. I got into all these good schools. I have to go to the school. I, what, what do you, what would you, what would you even mean? What do you mean? I what is the point? Why did I work all, no. all throughout high school for it? Yeah. And then I went to college and I would a hundred percent redo college if I could. So yeah. 
what is your relationship like with your parents? How did they shape you? That's a huge question, but it sounds like they probably, you know, put some pressure on you as I think most parents do, but it sounds like they really wanted you to form your own opinions just from hearing about taking a gap year and just from knowing you. It seems like they instilled a strong sense of self and tried to make sure that you were making your own decisions instead of just what you should be doing. But obviously at 18, when you're trying to do, you just want to do what everyone else is doing. So of course you're going to go to college, but can you speak to a little bit more of what your upbringing was like with your parents? Yes. Good question. And good read on my my parents. Have you met my parents? I feel like you got them really I, well I, just I, in that description. <laughs> I, I feel like I have, but I don't think I have, but I feel like I know them. Yeah. So a couple things I think led into this. I am the youngest child of four in my immediate family. My three other siblings, my three older siblings are all half siblings from my dad's first marriage. So they're between eight and 10 years older than I am. And by the time my parents had me, they were both almost 40. So definitely later in life. So I think that kind of family dynamic definitely led to my parents being older and being more or less strict in the way that they were raising me, having had experiences with my siblings who, I say my oldest sibling was is the most type A high achiever of our whole family compared to my parents, compared to her mom, because we have different moms. And she is the person, she excelled in school and then she went to a great college and then she went and got her law degree and she's always that person who's still climbing and just wanting to be the best, really, really striving. And then my two other siblings had much more meandering paths in life. So they both neither of them graduated from a traditional high school both of them since got their GEDs but after kind of a journey back to education neither of them are doing work that you need a college degree for and they're at this point pretty content after I would say many years of hardship and turmoil on their behalf and my parents behalf but they're out there living their best to their ability lives and feeling content with that so I think all of that said, by the time my parents are raising me, they're like, okay, well, we're just going to let's see what, see what happens with this kid. We've learned some <laughs> things about like putting high expectations on a kid. We've learned some things about kids not being able to, or our expectations not matching what our, where our kids were at and that being a source of conflict. So all of that definitely led into it. I'm going to keep talking. Because another piece is that both my parents have careers in which they really just found a passion and were like, I want to keep studying this passion because it's interesting to me. And it led to successful careers for both of them. My dad's a geologist and he was a kid who loved hiking and being outside. I went to study, wanted to just be outside. That was his main goal. And then ended up getting a PhD in geology, being successful in that. And my mom is a therapist. And I think the mentality of a therapist is often follow your path, find your, find your truth, find your dream. We're here to support you in that, whatever it may be. So all that combination led to, it's a pretty open and understanding upbringing. Yeah. I love that. I do think there is first child syndrome. I think one of my really good friends just had a baby and I'm seeing, you know, her perfectionism play out in her 
child rearing. And I relate to that heavily as a firstborn. When you said your oldest sibling is really striving, I feel like that is such, that resonates that word so much with me. I did my first macro dose of mushrooms a few months ago. And I think that was a word. What is all this striving for? (laughs) I was having a real reckoning of just what is the goal here? What, who's it all for? Because it doesn't feel like it's for me, (laughs) to my benefit. Interesting. Yes. Those mushrooms really lead you to some, some deep places. Can I take a pause and ask you more about your mushrooms experience? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think I'm just going to share about it. Yeah. I, I was able to look at, I was right before the week before I had gotten a bunch of my childhood belongings from my parents' house. And so I was reading old journals and just seeing what little Kendall was thinking about. And so when I did it, I was just like looking at, I just wanted to hug little Kendall because she was striving from third to fourth grade on. And I wrote about this briefly in my blog when my dad left me a little note of after my first grade grades came back and he was like, soon you'll have straight A's. I had gotten a B plus in handwriting in first grade. And I don't want to personally crucify my dad, but that went straight to my brain and I will get good grades. And so you can see the other semesters of first grade, I got straight A's, you know, and so it was off to the races ever since. And beyond just the perfectionism and grade chasing, there was so much, I just feel like there's so much of my life and my choices that I make based on how others will perceive me. And I think this dovetails nicely into what I wanted to talk to you about when you first decided to stop shaving your legs and how much that opened up a world for you when you just let go of what society wants you to do. And I've always come back to this because it was so impactful for me to hear that story. And I just find you so inspiring. And I'm starting to slowly embrace little things where I'm like, I don't want to wear a bra today and I'm not gonna, you know, and just little rebellions like that. And they're scary, but also very freeing because I'm finally doing something for me instead of for others. And so that was the striving and just constantly how am I being perceived by others were too blaring takeaways of just why, why am I continuing to live this way? So that was a lot, but uh, those were my little mushroom epiphanies. Really open up the world, let you really see the truth of the matter. I am firmly a believer now. I'm like, everyone needs to do mushrooms. If you haven't done mushrooms, I don't know if I trust you, you know, you got to really get in tune. So yes, I remember having a similar experience to that. I think back when I was in college, it's when I first attempted to have that kind of experience. And it really did open my mind up to so many just interesting truths and making connections across my brain waves that I hadn't put words to before. And I can't remember what those connections were. I'm sure I could dig deep into some journals. I remember furiously scribbling while I was having this hallucinogenic experience, but highly recommend for the pod. (laughs) So when you were in college too, I wonder, because we met in our sorority and if you looked at us today, I don't know if you would be like, those girls definitely met in a sorority. And I, I know I feel a little bit of not shame slash embarrassment, but just sometimes I feel 
yeah, I guess shame slash embarrassment that I'm associated with that whole thing. I watched HBO's documentary Bama Rush. I don't know if you watched it. No, I wouldn't recommend it, frankly, because the director inserted herself into the narrative. It was mainly her memoir instead of about Bama Rush, but it just feels kind of icky to be associated with sororities in general. But frankly, I needed it at such a big school. I don't know how I would have made friends otherwise, so that I just need to name that. And I did make some really wonderful friends, you included. But I'm just curious if you felt, if you feel any dissonance when you look back on that version of yourself. hundred percent. And it's really interesting for me. I agree. I agree with that sentiment that it's such a big school and I really needed a community to find place in and to make friends. And I did end up making some really amazing friends. And I think what's interesting is that the dissonance for me started at the very beginning and I still stuck with it for four years. I remember going through Rush. I remember getting my bid and then thinking, this isn't for me. I don't really like so much of being in a sorority, but I found this group and I committed to this thing. So I'm going to see it through. I'm going to at least see what it's like. And then like, you know, you get attached, you find people, you find a community and it's hard to think about switching or changing when you have found that. And in some ways it's really working for you, but yeah, that this idea, I don't know, looking back, I now it's just kind of a funny thing that because I tell people about it and they are always shocked. You, Rachel <laughs> Namson, was you were in a sorority that is so surprising from what I know about you. And I'm like, yes, I know it's surprising from what I know about me too. <laughs> Not even that. I was the freaking vice president at a point right? in my time. I was you were very important. involved. <laughs> but this idea that it, I don't know, something that I think about a lot is that. In some ways, being in a sorority and being in this kind of conformist environment allowed me to explore my identity, not in, in some, in in a lot of communities, you form your identity as being with the community, you take on the traits of the community. And I think in some ways, I really formed my personality and my identity, almost in opposition to this conformist society, where I was like, oh, you're telling me that I have to pluck my eyebrows or get an eyebrow wax before rush. And I was like, well, my mom told me that once I start waxing my eyebrows, I'll always have to do it. And I have no interest in doing that. So I said to the person, I was like, no, I'm not interested in that. I have great eyebrows. (laughs) What about it? And so bit by bit, I just started building up my identity almost in opposition. And it's through that, that I found this kind of ability to be a non-conformist, which you brought up earlier with the fact that I don't shave my legs. I wrote about that too, getting pressure to dye my hair more blonde in college. And I was so vehemently opposed to it. And, but then it's funny because I ended up dying for the last like seven or eight years after college. So I guess I do relate to the non-conformist aspect, but at least for me, when I got my makeup done for the very first time for our senior ball in high school. She told me your eyebrows are out of control. You need to do something about them. (laughs) And I can't do anything for you today because I'm just going to draw them on, but you need to get them taken care of. And I was mortified. I'm still, I still talk to my high school friends. How could you have let me 
walk through the world with the eyebrows that I had. And it's so stupid, but it's interesting that you uh, had the fortitude to say, no, I love my eyebrows. Whereas the minute someone told me my eyebrows were wrong, I still have a folder of pictures of my eyebrows looking their worst. And if anyone asks me, I bring it up and I'm like, look at how ridiculous they were. And they weren't that big of a deal because they're blonde. You can't really even see them. And they're just eyebrows, but I just... I felt like it was such a moral failing and that everyone was doing it without me because I looked around and all my friends had been plucking their eyebrows and I was like, hey, why didn't anyone tell me about this? So I felt how I kind of feel about femininity in general. I just feel like it's a code I have never cracked and I'm constantly striving to figure it out. And I know that's how capitalism wants me to feel and they want me to buy more things to plug this gaping hole that I feel, but I just applaud you for knowing yourself and trusting yourself more deeply at a time when I myself was super insecure and just any feedback would send me into a tailspin. I mean, and that really goes back to the the way that I was raised mm-hmm. by my parents, because these are messages that I got from my, from my mom, right? She was always like, She's a naturalist. She barely wears makeup. And so I grew up think, like looking at her and being like, oh, that's the norm. That's just, I mean, of course I would see my friend's parents with makeup and be like, oh, that's interesting. I want to have fun doing that. And there are definitely times where I've wanted to explore that, but the under, underarching, overarching. Yeah. Overarching slash or undercurrent. I don't know which one you're trying to say. Anyway. I don't remember. The overarching theme was self-acceptance. Yeah. Or something along yes. those lines? Yes. The core value. The core value yeah. was self-acceptance and just that you don't need you don't need to buy in to to be happy. You can try these things on, you can test them out. And if they bring you joy, if they make you feel like you, then go for it. But if they don't, if you don't like it, you don't have to. Mm. You don't like it. You don't have to. My motto. <laughs> that's funny because my mom's the same way she never wore makeup and the reason I blame I blame her for my eyebrows because she doesn't do anything to her eyebrows and I'm like mom you didn't teach me the cardinal girl rules you know I just would see other mommy daughter pairs and they'd go get pedicures and stuff something we never did and I felt very much that something was lacking instead of just being happy with what I had so I think that's a much better, healthier perspective than the comparison game, which can get slippery. And it's so present in our society. There are so many messages. You were saying you had one person make this comment that, oh, someone needs to be done by your eyebrows. And I'm sure there's more little things, but those really fed into this idea that you had to be a certain way and you weren't achieving that. And words have, words have meaning. They have they have serious consequences for people's lives. I mean, again, language arts teacher knows she cannot underscore the importance of words enough. But I do want to go back to the moment you decided to stop shaving your legs because this was before you moved to Portland, right? Yes, this was. So it was senior year of college oh my gosh yeah I realized yeah so senior year of college which was in 20 it was in no shave November so it was November of 2014 it's been now almost 10 years that I have not shaved my legs 
I've done it a few times just to see what it was like because I'm curious. I don't like it. It's not for me. But <laughs> I remember someone, I think some people in our sorority were doing No Shave November and they're just like, oh, we're just going to do No Shave November. And I was like, okay, sounds fun. I'll do it. And I stopped shaving for one month and was like, holy shit, this is amazing. I don't have to shave my legs. And then it dawned on me just how much time and energy I had spent pimping myself in the shower, shaving my legs. And I have, for context, for the, for the listeners, very thick, dark, coarse leg hair that you shave and then it comes back within hours and you feel like you never have a clean shave. It's never a comfortable experience on my legs. And so I stopped doing it and so many things changed in that way. I was like, okay, I saved so much time. I saved so much energy. I saved my shower drains. I shaved that, I saved that feeling of, you know, feeling down and feeling those prickles that's still uncomfortable. And, and this was definitely at a time in my life where I was exploring what it was like to be different. And so I was open to that feeling. There are definitely times in my life where it would not have worked, but at that moment, this was just post the mushrooms. I think I was open to feeling Mm. just what could the world be like if, which I think is always a fun, a thought experiment. What would it be like if dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. But so much of my, okay, the reason why it was so formative for me is because so much of the bullying that I experienced as a young kid was around my leg hair. I was called gorilla. I was called, why doesn't she shave her legs? And I remember being in third grade and stealing my mom's razor from the bathroom and trying to shave without soap, without shaving cream, having zero idea what I was doing, but wanting to not feel like I was less than or inferior or ugly or whatever these messages were that were being sent to me these bull- by these bullies. And so I, for so many years of my early life, I was so obsessed with having, no, I have to shave my legs because this is what people, people think less of me because of it. And that, I think that's why it was so foundational that once I stopped shaving, I really shed this belief that I had to be a certain way and in that way like you mentioned earlier it really opened up that kind of idea for so much else in my life where I can just not buy in and let that happen and I will say that it is still very challenging and I still feel uncomfortable so much of the time when I'm out and about especially now that it's summer season and I'm wearing my shorts and wearing dresses and I'm like oh look at me out in the world oh, I have hairy legs. I wonder what people are thinking of me because I have hairy legs, which in fact, I'm just going to keep going on this monologue. One thing that I was really thinking about as I was starting to become a teacher is that, oh, kids are mean and they don't often see adult women with hairy legs and they are going to notice this and they are going to think things about me. Like I am standing in front of 85 kids on a daily basis who are just looking at me as their sole focus. Mm -hmm. Of course, they've got so much else going on in their lives, but they see everything. They notice so much. And so it was one of the things that I thought about going into teaching. Oh, oh no, they're going to notice. They're going to think things and whatever that means. I'm not sure if I'm ready to deal with. And on the other side of that coin is I can be a model for so many young kids of look at this adult person who is clearly successful, who is, I think, likable, who is caring, who's whatever, she's doing her teacher thing. I'm a person who most kids, I think, 
like and respect. And I don't show my legs. And that's a model for them to see someone who is not conforming to these standards. Mm-hmm. Which brings me to a funny story that I've been thinking about and is digging a little bit deeper than I expected. The last week of school is always a time where you, okay, we can do fun things. We're going to do fun activities. And I was like, you know what? I'm feeling a little bit brave. Let's do a teacher roast. I want my kids to make fun of the way that I teach. I want them to call me out for the silly catchphrases I say, or call me out for, I really was thinking they would, they would roast me for like, oh, Miss Namson, she always says this one thing. Oh, she's always telling us to do this. Oh, she's so cringe when she says, like, I was really thinking it would be teaching related. Oh, but let me tell you, this was a chance for many kids to call me out for not shaving my legs. They had been thinking about this all year and were finally like, oh, we have the opportunity. So it's like, what's the most cringe thing your teacher does? Not shave her legs. What's the catch your teacher on YouTube? What's she looking up? Shaving tutorials. All of the comments they made were about shaving. And I was like, one, your children, your words don't bother me. I don't actually care what you think about me. Two, unoriginal. Yeah, obviously I don't shave my legs. Do you think I don't know that? Do you think I need help with tutorials on how to shave my legs? (laughs) Funny, I actually know how to use YouTube. I know how to shave my legs. I just don't. So that that stuck with me. I was a a little prickly. I was like, oh, shoot. They think things about me. And I wonder if that impacts my ability to be a good teacher. Sometimes if a kid does see something about me that they don't respect, for whatever reason, does Mm. that close down an opportunity for them to want to learn from me? And overall, I don't think it does, but there's definitely a little bit of a moment. Hmm. That's that's on your mind. Oh, so much good stuff. (laughs) One, you are so brave. Let's do a teacher roast. That sounds like a personal nightmare to me. I wouldn't do it again. I wouldn't do it again. (laughs) You are so brave. I think that just is a testament to your personality too and the kindness and goodness. And you just are like, what silly things will they come up with? And you just are not suspecting how savage they can be. I mean, middle school, man. I have so many things I want to say. The, The first one that comes to mind is when I wrote last week's little blog post about appearance shame. One person who's inspired me to blog, he commented and said an interesting thing. He said, what if you basically divested from your appearance? You know, you just made it less important. You stopped looking in the mirror so much. You stopped taking selfies and things like that. And I, my first thought was, oh, okay, sure. I'll just stop caring about what I look like. That's insane. You know, I was like, what a ridiculous thing to propose. And I do I did bristle back and and said, "Do you think we have the same thing things on the table to lose, you know, you as a male and me as a female, you know, just because we live in different worlds." <laughs> and I don't want to discount that. I think that's true. And I and it reminds me of what you're saying about do the kids see something they don't respect in me? For example, the messaging to me about appearance has always been how much you value yourself is your is how you present yourself outwardly and externally. If you're thin, means you exercise. And if you have a good skin, it means you have all these, you care about and your skin and have a regimen and all these things that point back to 
your sense of self, or at least that's something I've absorbed. I'm not saying it's a fact, but so when he says that, my internal thought is, oh, does that mean I'm just giving up and being a slob and people will, because I will lose social capital if I stop, you know, doing these beauty standards. I, and that's honestly, I think just a fact because our world is more biased toward thin, pretty white people. And that's just the way we have structured our society. And so I, and then I also wrote about how I have a problem with Emily Ratajkowski and how she kind of wants it both ways. She wants to profit off of her body, but at the same time wants to be taken seriously. And I just think, do we blame the system or do we blame the individual? If I decide to opt out of the system, I'll just be an individual on the outside. I don't know if I'm really inspiring change or if I'm just becoming ostracized. So do you feel like that has been a struggle for you by opting out and you're kind of on the outside of the circle and the bubble of what is acceptable? Do you feel like there's been any repercussions of that or no? Good question. I think there probably are repercussions, but not none that I care about because mm -hmm. there's, there's this very strong part of me that says, well, one, if you can't accept me for who I am and give me what I deserve based on who I am as a human, then I don't want your validation. I don't want to be a part of your circle anyway. Mm -hmm. And I think that also since being in a sorority, since then I have found for the most part communities of people who are also kind of on that outside the norms, find like fighting what fighting stereotypes or, mm -hmm. or not so concerned with capitalist values, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And the job I had previous to teaching, I was working at a nonprofit where we supported people and families who were impacted by the criminal justice system. And just by nature, these are all people who are on the outside of, of social norms, right? They mm -hmm. have been physically removed from society and placed into different institutions where they don't get that same access. And then they come back from incarceration and try to reintegrate in communities and are looked down upon or can't get jobs, can't get housing. And so th they're not able to access that system either. So working at a place like that, it's just taken for a fact that, no, we don't support the system. We exist outside the system anyway. We're supporting mm. people in this journey over here and trying to create something new. And I think teaching has a very similar kind of philosophy, right? We're trying to meet all kids where they're at. We're fighting up against systems that are not supportive for so many kids, especially students of color, especially kids coming from low income families and neighborhoods who don't have resources. None of these people have a lot of access to mainstream supports. So mm -hmm. we're all kind of on the outside in that way. Yeah, I love that. Final thought on the matter. You said, I'm bringing it back to you. You said earlier that do people see me and not want to, I don't know, respect me or be friends with me or whatever. But you are a person who has yourself said you admire that about me. So mm -hmm. challenge that notion, Kendall Brown. I was going to say <laughs> that. I was going to say, let's go further here because when I really challenge myself on what am I envisioning when I say I would lose social capital, I'm really just thinking that the of the 
middle-aged white men who might hire me for a tech job I don't want. And they would notice that I'm not wearing mascara or something, you know? So that's blatantly clear that that's not someone that I value their opinion. So, and, and when you described, you know, we're helping people outside of the system, that's, you know, what it's all about for me is that (laughs) the system is broken and we're only helping a very small amount of people. So of course we want to help people see alternative narratives and help them achieve whatever they want. And so that really resonates for me. And, and when you were describing how these kids might not see a woman who doesn't shave their legs, that my first thought was, and how awesome that they're going to see that modeled because I'm sure if I had seen that, I would have felt less insecure in third or fourth grade about the leg hair that was coming in for me. And mine mine was blonde and I was still super insecure about it. So if my Mm -hmm. teacher who was like this, I I distinctly remember she was 26 and she had a boyfriend who came once to play kickball with us. And I remember I had the thought, she doesn't even have a husband. In fourth grade, (laughs) I was judging my 26-year-old teacher who looked like a little Barbie doll, you know. So I already had some intense internalized misogyny, you know, and all of that. So anything we can do to combat that at a younger age would be really just delightful and welcome. So, yeah, I think... If I, I think it's about really facing down what you're challenging because there are so many nebulous fears of what will I lose? But if you name them and then you're like, hmm, well, is that really a loss for me? No, it's just my immediate fear of being not accepted. Yeah, there's serious power in, in naming those things. I will also say that what you may lack in subscribing to beauty standards you can make up for with just pure confidence you go into that room full of tech guys and you just I mean this is this is how I have combat I just decide to be confident instead of I don't know how I figured out how to do this this is I I recommend this to people and I'm like wait that's such a hard thing to do I do not know (laughs) where I figured this out how, how to be confident, I don't know. It's the hardest thing in the world. But you just show up, no, I'm supposed to be here. You think I'm funny. You think I'm intelligent. You don't care what I look like. That is what I'm going to think that you're thinking about me. And we're going to go from that point. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you've done a really good job at attacking imposter syndrome. When you say, I belong here, that just is the crux of my identity crisis. It's <laughs> just battling my imposter syndrome in every facet of my life. So I think it all goes back to the same core, self-love, self-acceptance. And you can't just, it's not as easy as you make it sound, or maybe it's it is. So maybe easy. It is. No, it's not easy. I have done a lot of work on myself to get to this point. I've spent a lot of time in therapy. I've spent a lot of time thinking and grappling with these issues. And I have gotten to this point where I have a fully fledged kind of core belief system that guides me in my daily life that so I don't have to actively think about these things that Mm. much anymore. But it's really one of the things I said I wanted to talk about today was this, these kind of big feelings that you have as a kid versus the way that you move through the world as an adult. And I'm saying a lot of adults have not figured this out yet. It's something we're still talking about, but I see all my, a lot of my students kind of going through this really hard stuff where they're dealing so deeply with anxiety and being bullied and self-acceptance. And I 
like, because I'm on this point in my journey where I'm like, oh, I figured it out. I don't, why can't you just figure it out? Like, you're a 12 year old. Of course you haven't figured anything out. The world is so insane to you. I don't know. So that's something that I find myself having a lot of trouble with right now, which is a really interesting point. I'm like, wait, I wish I could access more of my anxiety because I need to empathize and I need to help these kids through this hard experience, but I don't know how to deal with anxiety anymore. Oh no, what has happened to me? I just, I'm not anxious. What happened? That is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Oh my gosh. Wow. I think there's so much in that. I think, unfortunately, a lot of my core beliefs are middle school, are from middle school that I've just carried from then. So, yeah, I think if you can help them on a better path and to not have anxiety, I don't think you need empathy. I mean, I think you need empathy, but I don't think you need to experience the anxiety to empathize with them. I love that you're not having anxiety right now. And I also, I just think, no, to your point, not a lot of people have done that work. And I, you know, quit my job and I'm basically trying to do that. I'm trying to outline my core beliefs and my map so I can start following it. Because right now I've just thrown away the map that I was given, but I really do not have my own blueprint on like what to follow. And so it feels like I'm in this liminal space of, oh, I don't like the default, but I really don't know what I do like. And so it's amazing to hear that you've done this really hard work where you don't have to, because I have a lot of that mental anguish right now because I don't have that stuff fleshed out. But when you do have your North Star, you can kind of evaluate when things come in, if they fit in with your framework or not. So I think everyone should do this and you don't have to quit your job to do this. Obviously you're a living proof of this and I don't have anything figured out, but I am, at least I have the language for that process that I'm going through, and which has been it helpful. So beautifully. <laughs> well, it, it doesn't, it, I can put it beautifully in like, here's the uncertainty, but to get to a layer deeper beyond, I don't know what I'm doing is where it gets more messy of like, I really don't know what my core tenants are. That have you discovered silly to say. Your, no, that's, it's real. That's real. Especially when you realize you come to that realization point where the things that you have been following are actually not in line with your with what you want for your life yeah where are you starting from it's from very little have you figured any of these things out in your journey so far or we have any inklings yet so I do have a spreadsheet of four potential careers. Of course, I have a spreadsheet, but I actually don't think that I want to do any of them. I'm not sure. I can tell you what they are. The first one is I would love to be an acupuncturist. I just think that would be fantastic, but I do not want to move to Portland or wherever there are only a handful of places you can move to Phoenix or something and go to school. And it's really expensive. It's, you know, it's not a medical school, but it's pretty intense. You know, you have to learn mm-hmm. a lot of biology and things like that. And so I love learning about holistic health and Ayurveda and methods like that, but I don't know if I love it enough to commit my whole life to it. So that's something that scares me. So my backup career under that is, oh, maybe I'll be a massage therapist. There's a lot of Eastern philosophy and being in touch with your body, but I really also don't like touching other people. So that's a pretty big no-no if you think you want to be a massage therapist. Have you thought about just being a therapist, being more of a traditional? That is, that is also on the list. I mean, 
Yes. And so I'm exploring that. And my current therapist is a social worker. And I didn't even know that you could be a therapist with by training as a social worker. And so I'm just more learning what the different distinctions are and paths to get to where you want to be. Because I do think being a social worker or studying social work would be more interesting to me because it's kind of like sociology where it's more of systems, communities versus just individual, which I find endlessly fascinating mm-hmm. as well. But I just think a broader perspective is something that appeals to me. I just always associated social work with poverty. I know that's a bad thing to say, but I just know it's basically deciding you are not going to make any money and that that Mm. stresses me out. And then also you need a master's to do all these jobs that pay minimum wage when you're done. And so that's frightening. And then I've met with a lot of therapists and they've like a lot, only a handful, three. And two of the three have said, don't do it. That was their first thing out of their mouths. When I said, oh, I'm considering being a therapist or going to grad school, they just say that. And that's really jarring to hear. I think one of them mm-hmm. was very burnt out from COVID, but the other, I mean, I do acknowledge that it's an emotionally draining profession. And I think a lot of people warn or want to warn people that it's not all sunshine and healing people, but And then my other one is maybe getting into the mushroom therapy game and then being a death doula, an end-of-life doula. So those are my potential careers that sound interesting. I wanted to answer your question, which was the underlying theme is that I want to be a healer. I don't know what that looks like, but I just feel called to that. There's this woman who passed away. She was only a year older than us and, or older than me. I'm a year older than you. So two years older than you. She went to a neighbor high school and she passed away from COVID in March, 2020, very unexpectedly. And she had just finished up nursing school. And she said she had these beautiful, amazing journals and her sister, her twin sister put them online for people to enjoy. And they're so inspiring. And they've, that really kicked off my interest in death, seeing her, this beautiful, wonderful human just vanish from the earth. And she wanted to be a healer. And when she said that, or when I heard that, I just, that resonated super deeply with me. I was like, I want to be a healer. And I just kind of assumed that meant you had to be a nurse or a doctor, but I, I don't think that's true. And so I'm seeing that more broadly. So that's, I don't have a ton of clarity, but I have some focus. I think that's beautiful. And I totally see this path for you because you, Kendall, some things about you. Okay, I'm going to cry. No, Uh, just do it. Let it go. Be free. Um, (laughs) Sidebar, my bat mitzvah speech was about the importance of crying. So that is a core tenet. Oh my God, who are you? I know. That's amazing. You're like the most beautiful soul. But that's that's true about you. You are a person who cares really deeply about people and you are so curious about people and about the world. So I can see this these two core traits of yours really converging in this healing, but also in a way that makes you really curious about who these people are and about where they come from and why helping people, you have this podcast, you're helping kind of unpack and helping people on their journey. So I see it for you. Also, sidebar, I know somebody who is an end-of-life chaplain who is one of my favorite people who I know in this world. One of my mom's really good friends. So if you ever want to get in touch with Fran, she is a top-tier human. Oh, I definitely do. I think anyone who chooses that line of work is a top-tier human. They just have to be because that's just the most intimate 
form of life, like our time of life, seeing someone at the end of their life. So yeah, I, I, I'm going to take the training for the end of life doula program that is here in Bend. It's actually only online, but still it's not till September and you don't have to commit to, I don't know if it's something I could even make a career out of. I just think it'd be a really great personal development class training to take part in. But to your point, I, I, that part about therapy or being a therapist really appeals to me because I love understanding people and I would love to help people. That's where my imposter syndrome comes up of who are you to think you could help someone? You still have so many demons, you know, you still have a lot of, or demons is a strong word, but you know, internal strife. And then when I, when I really just think, what would I love to do just in a fantasy world? It was just, it would just be to have a podcast. I just love interviewing people and talking to people. I would do this all day, every day. If I could support myself. So maybe one day I'll be, I, I, I hesitate to say Joe Rogan because I don't want to be Joe Rogan, <laughs> but it would be cool to just be able, my, my life goal is to be Oprah, which is stupid to say because I, I'm not Oprah, but she just, picks, she just picks amazing topics and is like, team, let's dig into this. I just think that's the coolest job you could possibly have. Yeah. Journalism. Did you ever consider that as a career? Yes. And my mom is a journalist or studied journalism and has always been like a freelance writer. And so mm-hmm. <laughs> the thread is I take everything my mom says very seriously. And so I said, I want to be an investigative journalist. And she said, do you want to take a vow of poverty? And so I said, no, I'll do something else. So I did and finance. It really sucks that our society does not value with money the things that we so clearly value with the way that we consume things like teachers nurses therapists and journalists right these are such these things are the fabric of our world and is that and that is why they're undervalued is because we have to do we know that we have to do it even if it's not paid and if you're called to that kind of work you will put up with it because it is important to you and we're like well no one's going to not do it because we have to do it. So we might as well get away with not paying people mm-hmm. for the value that they are adding, which is so lame. Yeah, I am having a big reckoning with capitalism and it's just, <laughs> I just want to burn it all down. And I know we can't, but it's just, it's so lame. You're right. The way everything is structured, it's just, it's really discouraging and it's just, it's hard to wake up in the morning sometimes knowing that you have to be a part of this capitalist struggle and you can't Mm -hmm. just, if everyone could just do what they were called to do and just had their needs met, what, I can't even, I can't even fathom it. It would be beautiful, wonderful time. Of course, I say all of this from a serious place of privilege, knowing that yeah, I may not make that much money as a teacher, but I have people in my life that I can fall back on if I don't really make it, which definitely not everybody has that privilege. Yeah. So I just want to acknowledge and, that. Like a lot of this, oh yeah, let me follow my dream. It comes from a place of going, oh, well, because I'm safe. I'm safe if I if I don't make that much money. I'm safe if I fail. I'm safe mm-hmm. if I have to quit my job and try something new. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I was listening to this audiobook written by an abortion doula. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called You or Someone You Love. And she 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 names this. She says the problem in the doula work is that often only 
the women who can, or the people who can take this very low paying, emotionally intense work are people who have full blown support systems, you know, and so there's not people of color represented in doula work. It's often, you know, rich white ladies. And so that is just a problem in a lot of nonprofit work and not just nonprofit mm -hmm. work, but all of these roles that really need a diverse group of people working them. It's unfortunate that, and so I feel definitely some squishiness there when I'm having this time of total privilege where I'm choosing not mm -hmm. to work. I just know that that's not the default experience by any means. And so I think it's important to name for sure. That's yeah. a problem. Ugh. How did you decouple, or maybe you never had to decouple, your paycheck from your self-worth? Like, how did you know that you were okay doing things that didn't require, um, like you, you, you said, even when you worked in the corporate world, it wasn't for this big paycheck. And you mentioned that when I've asked you this before, that your parents um, both like just followed their passions. But I always, I always wanted to come back and say, but you actually grew up in an incredibly affluent community. So they had to have been doing something right. Like, is there any, or not something right that that's the right thing to do, but something to live in Orange County and uh, maybe mm -hmm. you don't want to be out of where you grew up. So I can scrub that, but you know what I mean? No, I grew up, well, I grew up in the Valley in Los Angeles and then moved to San Clemente, which is, a, it's an affluent neighborhood in Orange County, but it's definitely not the most like mm -hmm. affluent, but. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought you grew up in San Clemente. You no, know, I grew up in Los Angeles. I'm a Valley girl. You're a Valley um, girl. Well, okay, a couple things. One, I did, I never had to decouple that because for me growing up, my parents never really instilled that brought up they never really instilled that in me that money was the important part of having a career of course they wanted me to be successful in that like I found something interesting and hopefully like paid me well enough to like live a life but mm -hmm. it was not something that was at the forefront of a lot of our conversations um and yeah both of my parents followed their passions and my dad was like I love rocks I want to study geology he went to school at a time when you could go get an education and go get a PhD yeah. in a relatively affordable way. So he got a PhD in geology and he got to follow his passion by making maps, which he loves and exploring the earth, which he loves, but primarily by looking at maps and telling oil companies where to dig for oil. So mm, okay. yes, um, I come from oil, from big oil money. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not really, but yes, my dad worked for it's oil there. companies for a long time and then was an independent contractor and is still like gets called upon even in his retirement like hey Dr. Namson can you come look at these maps we gotta drill a well <laughs> and he flies to Texas he flies to Oklahoma and he's like all right here's where you dig the well that's crazy um, and my mom is a she's like I said she so she's a licensed clinical social worker she also got a degree in social work and mm. she found well-paying work by being the counseling director at universities. So mm -hmm. she was the on-campus therapist for a couple of different universities and then has found success in her private practice. But most of our family money comes from, comes from oil. I'm not going to lie. I appreciate you um, providing that transparency because I know it's personal and I just like kind of like put you on <laughs> 
the defense of like, oh, well, you still have to like, I mean, you still have to make money in, in this world, yeah. unfortunately. So True. that's another thing that kind of scares me is that I'd love to be a therapist helping people kind of like me who are like recovering perfectionists. But at the same time then I'm like, oh, I'm not helping the greater system. I'm helping individuals, but I don't feel like, I don't know, I have this overarching really like deep need to make the world a better place and um I just thought everyone felt this way like don't you think everyone feels this way or no a lot of people feel this way yeah I would say the majority of people feel this way at least on some level Uh, a fewer of them feel the need to make that a reality they might like feel that way but then Mm -hmm. not follow that yeah path because my towards a career or whatever yeah. involvement I think I'm just taking it too far like I'm like my career needs to be giving back and I guess that's where some people might draw the line like I was talking to my friend who just had the baby and I was like I couldn't possibly have a baby until I figure out what I'm gonna do to like make the world a better place and she um she how do I say this without, I don't know. She just was like, I don't feel that same level of impending need. And I don't want to say it in a way of mm-hmm. like, I'm superior because I feel that way. It's just, I think it's silly that I'm letting that stop me from a next decision. Like, I don't know why I'm conflating the two. Hmm, interesting. I don't know why you are either. I don't, I don't know. I think I'm just so convinced that my life is going to end when I have children mm. that I'm just like, I better mm. figure it out now. Cause I'm not going to figure it out when I have no time, you know, that's my, that's it. but there's always time. Exactly. And th- that's like the ridiculous part of it is that life doesn't end, you know? No. And I knew that I've worked with plenty of women that have children, you know, and I know their life doesn't mm-hmm. end, but I do feel like I just worry that my internal quest will get sidetracked because I'll be so focused on this other human. And so I'm like, I got to really dial in myself. So that's Mm -hmm. my fear, but we don't have to, I'd love to go into your thoughts on motherhood and children. Cause I just think that you have some probably very. Call me back on the pod. We'll talk about it. Yeah. Um, I hate that. I don't hate that, but my first two episodes were about like mother daughter relationships and like having kids. And I hate that that's like the underlying theme, but that's just my reality as a 31 year old woman that I'm just exploring. Um, I will say that having kids is something that I would like to do at this current stage of being a teacher where I am with children for eight plus hours a day. I could not imagine at this stage of my life having a kid and having to come home and deal with more kids. I know. (laughs) Like there's so many teachers who are parents and I probably will get there at some point, but it's not going to be, not going to be in the immediate future because wow, kids are exhausting. My mother-in-law had four children and worked full time as a seventh grade language arts teacher. And it's just like, blows my brain. I just blows my mind. I just can't. And I was thinking about that today. I was like, should I go work in a daycare? I just like love children. And then I'm like, oh, I don't know, because then I want to have my own child. And that just seems like work on work on work. You know, like if you make that your life's work to be around children. Oh, yeah. They're a lot of work, man. 
Um, I actually have to go meet my CASA. Have I told you? I think I told you that I'm doing CASA. No. Court-appointed oh, court special advocate. Have you heard of it? I have. That's a um, very cool thing to do. Yes, and I'm going to go meet her for the very first time. So I have a hard stop, and I have to go meet her. But I could talk to you literally for hours about so many I, things. And I miss when we used to both live in Portland, and I remember we walked like – it wasn't Dog Mountain, but we took a nice walk out in the gorge once, and I was just like, we were just talking about life, and I miss those days. And we both live in Oregon now, so come to Bend and visit Yay. me, please. I will 100% do that. Also, when I think about you and I describe you to other people, I'm like, oh, my friend Kendall. I say, Kendall is one of those people who you can just talk to for hours about such meaningful things, and the conversation will never end, and you don't have enough time to say all the things you want to say. So... Truly, you're one of my favorite people to talk to. Oh, oh, that's going in my journal, and I might cry, but I won't. Um, thank you. That <laughs> I'll think of like seventh grade little Rachel saying it's okay to cry. Do you have this on film? Because I need to see it. I definitely have it on film somewhere, and I know that I have the the printed version like accessible so maybe I'll oh. find it and send oh my it gosh. to you please send that to me because <laughs> I don't even know if my heart can take the sweetness that is seventh grade you talking about how it's okay to cry so thank you for um generously giving your time and talking about all the things and it's just so fabulous to connect with you and we'll have you back on because I just find you endlessly fascinating and wonderful and I'm so glad you're a teacher and you're setting a wonderful example for middle schoolers because we need more Rachel Nampsons out there oh thank you so much you're now you're <laughs> gonna make me cry and I'm not thanks all right. it's been so much fun it's been so much fun